0: Everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for season six, episode twenty-three, a Fox in the Hen House question mark. In this week's episode, we covered point of error number three in Sandy's most recently filed appeals brief, which cited some alleged jury misconduct. And we did two things during the episode. Number one, we broke down the Alleged misconduct, which involved an experiment that was performed or multiple experiments performed by the jurors and in the jury room against the judge's orders. And also these, as it was stated in the appeals brief, these were experiments that evaded the crucible of cross-examination. Then in the second half of the episode, we talked about some strange goings on uh, between the jury foreman and the prosecutor, Colleen Barnett. And that's, I'm sure, based on social media, is what everybody really wants to talk about. Um, so we'll answer a lot of those questions. Uh, but then I also really want to make sure that we cycle back to talking about the main, the actual point of error from the appeal brief, which is the experiments that were performed in the deliberation room. So all that being said, let's go ahead and let's get started. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next-day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next-day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18-plus terms apply.
1: All right, our first question comes from Thomas. Aside from legal implications for the jury form and Barnett connections in regards to
0: Sandy's trial, is it something that could have legal repercussions for them? It all depends. Um, and, and that's one thing that I want to make clear. I said it in the episode, but I want to make clear again that based on what I know for a fact, so there's a couple things. There's there's some ongoing investigations because it could have an impact in Sandy's trial and and, and more so than just what it could do for her legally, which is obviously the most important thing. But even beyond that, for us to learn, did she actually get a fair trial? Was there misconduct happening? There was kind of two elements with that regarding the jury foreman and the prosecutor's relationship. One is, I had some suspicions about this. There's so many things that seem so odd in this case. Um, And then, you know, started doing a little bit of investigation and honestly didn't have to investigate that much. A lot of people were just bringing things, still are bringing things to us. And as I said in the episode, we can confirm that the the foreman of Sandy's jury and the prosecutor, Colleen Barnett, do have a relationship of some kind. I also, I also do want to point out that because um, somebody shared some stuff on our fan page from the other page, which you know, we'll refer to the other show. The, the page is called Truth Is Justice. They have a website and a Facebook page and even a podcast. So if you guys want to know what we're talking about when we say the group that's setting the record straight, that's what it's called. Truth Is Justice. But some people from our fan page shared some stuff from over there where the jury foreman had responded, and based on some of that, I, want, I do want to make one thing clear. There, in no way was I implying or wanted the implication out there, because there is zero implications of this whatsoever, is that there's some kind of a romantic relationship between the two. That's not what we were pointing out. That's not what I was talking about. There's no evidence of that happening, so I just want to make sure we put that to bed uh, right now, that that's not the issue. But the information we've been getting was that these two are kind of working together. They're, you know, they've been seen in public together. You know, they've been communicating on their phones or their text messaging or calling All since after the trial. And even, you know, as recently as despite with some of the uh, the responses I've seen that this was just in regards to some interviews, this was happening as recently as this month, um, with, you know, three months after the 2020 episode interviews. So we know that they're communicating. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, there's not. It's a, it's a breadcrumb, so to speak. And it, it just, Kind of makes you wonder, was there anything going on between these two before the trial? We know that they have some mutual friends in common. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that we know. And then we see this, it seems like a strange relationship. I don't know what the ins and outs of it are because Barnett obviously has has declined or not declined, but has ignored our request for follow-up interviews. And the jury foreman, I spoke with him. Um, Gosh, it's been, it was still, what, August? Summertime. Yeah. Um, I spoke with him. He wanted to stay off the record and said he was too busy to do an interview and, and hasn't uh, reached out to do an interview again. He has my contact information. I'd love to hear directly what the relationship actually is. So, so we know for a fact there is a post-trial relationship between the two. Uh, what we don't know, and I again, I want to make that clear, we don't know if there was a relationship during or before the trial. So uh, kind of circling back to that question of their legal implications, if all that's occurred is after the trial, the foreman of the jury and the prosecutor sparked up a friendship, a relation, or just a bit whatever it is business relationship, whatever that relationship is. There's nothing. There's nothing illegal there. You know, there there's not violating any ethic laws. Uh, I've been again told, and this is this is what I've been has been shared on our page from uh, that other page. So I haven't heard any of this directly that the jury foreman says that uh, after the trial when dateline nbc reached out to him to do an interview he says that he then i think he just said obtained colleen barnett's uh, contact information and reached out to her so there's nothing there's nothing illegal about that i find it a little strange and then and then he went on to say the same thing with the khou interviews and the 2020 interviews it almost sounds like they're meeting to discuss what is you know what's going to be said or how they're going to handle these interviews so, do with that what you will. I think that's a little strange, too, that the jury that's supposed to be impartial, uh, a jury foreman, wants to communicate with the prosecutor to see how they want to present whatever they're going to present in their interviews. So, that's, that, that's all that, that's there as far as what we know for a fact is happening is that they have a relationship afterward. And there are no legal ramifications of that whatsoever. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Just, I find it maybe a little strange. And I think you know, given if this is you know putting together a talking porch for an interview, if that's what's going on, I find that a bit unethical, but it's not illegal. Uh, but so the, the issue would come in is if it were discovered that they had a relationship before, then there are some legal ramifications because during what year uh, before the trial, the jur the jurors were asked if they have a relationship or recognize or know anyone involved in the case, including the lawyers. Um, that relationship. Uh, that that's potential. Not even. I'm mean, not saying potential. Again, we're working hypothetically. If it were discovered that there was a relationship before, then that relationship would have not been disclosed. Um, so it very likely would result in a mistrial being declared. It could go as far as perjury charges against the jury foreman that didn't disclose a relationship. I kind of doubt that would actually happen. And again, I don't. Everything. Nothing's black and white here. It's it's a weird situation. So if that happened. As far as what would happen to the prosecutor, I don't know. I, I don't know. If she knew that that was going on and the jury member didn't disclose it, I don't know. And then if you take it any further, let's say there was any communication between the two during the trial. And again, hypothetically, there's no, and I'm not even suggesting that we have some evidence to, to lean towards that. We don't. We have, there are. I will say there are some allegations people have made there was a relationship beforehand, but they're not anything that I was able to confirm, uh, at least yet. Um so right now there's nothing uh, these are they're just accusations basically but nobody's even accused them of communicating during the trial but that's the big concern too so if there was a relationship before the trial and if there was any communication between the prosecutor and the jury foreman during the trial that's a huge deal again it would result absolutely in a mistrial the conviction would be overturned um, but now we're dealing with that would be prosecutorial misconduct it would be jury tampering there would be a lot going on there but So that's kind of the gamut of what could happen if certain situations existed. But again, I want to reiterate, the only thing that I know and can confirm now is that they have a relationship after the trial. And again, not a romantic relationship. I just know that they are in pretty regular communication with each other, uh, have been seen together in public since the trial has been over. Now, and and I'm just going to kind of explain some of this, Mike, and I'm sure you probably have questions that I'm already going over. But Sure, that's fine, Bob. Okay. Uh, and, and so then then that issue rolls into what I've been saying for months now is that this is very, very strange to me that the prosecutor, Colleen Barnett, has gone on this kind of like PR tour campaign about this case. Sure, she's doing interviews, and most prosecutors won't do that, but she did it, whatever. But going, I don't know, she's, she's making an, an extraordinary effort to present some false information, and it it just it just it's just mind boggling to me why you know when she comes on our show and tells us you know the the red cords match so we know that this happened and and there was uh the the marriage was in trouble and there was marriage counseling happened. these things like I don't understand why she's done that why she's why she has continued to go on and try to create this PR propaganda campaign about this case since it's been over. And then we see the same thing with the foreman of the jury, where he's out not just doing interviews, but is involved in, in like that Facebook group I was talking about that is all, you know, about setting the record straight and proving me wrong because I'm misleading and lying. Is are there other accusations about everything that I'm telling you guys? Like he's very involved in that. It's like, wh- and, and then, and then you see, oh, they're working. This This isn't just the jury foreman defending his verdict. In the prosecutor defending her case, they're they're together communicating and talking about how to present this kind of PR campaign or propaganda for what happened in the case. And then that rolls into this whole Truth is Justice group, which was started by a, a member that was a, a member of our fan page um, that was eventually removed from our fan page and then started his own, which is fine. They can do whatever he wants to do over there. But then they, they through their page are really, you know, there's a lot of attacks on, I mean, of course me, who cares, a lot of, but a lot of attacks on Liz Rose, uh, Jim and Sandy's daughter, and just a whole group of people just dedicating, trying to prove the prosecution's case, and, and still haven't, from what I've seen, given any evidence of any, Sandy's actual involvement in the case, but they're trying to pick everything apart, and just, again, continuing this propaganda, or PR campaign, through that Facebook page, and it's like, it's the same when Barnett's talking. It's the same when the jury foreman's talking. Now it's the same coming from that Facebook page. And then last week, as I happened to be preparing for this episode, I do get 100% confirmation that the person that runs that Facebook page and podcast and website is also in direct communication with Colleen Barnett and talking to her about planning when he's posting certain things on the Facebook page. It's not illegal, but it's 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 important to understand that everything you're seeing coming out of that group, that Facebook group or the website or the podcast is all of that is Colleen Barnett's mouthpiece. She's connected to all these people. She's connected to the jury foreman. She's connected to Sam Carroll, the guy that runs that podcast and everything. And they're discussing what they're doing next on the podcast and on the on the Facebook page. And so it's I think it's important for everybody to understand that, that that's where this information is coming from. And it's certainly suspect to me of just something's not right here. This is very fishy. It's weird. I've, I mean, I, I study wrongful conviction cases. I work on them for a living. I've never seen anything like this before, with the prosecutor just clawing and scratching this hard to try to get her talking points about her case out there to the world. And so the, those inner workings, if that's happening, I think it should be up front. And you guys all know from me, I have I have a relationship, so to speak, with Sandy's defense team. It's nothing like that. My relationship with them is to bounce things off of them or ask them, can you help me find this particular document? Um, they do not. They haven't even done an interview on the show. They've been so busy writing the appeals brief. It's very limited in scope. They don't control what I put on the podcast. They don't know what I'm putting out on the podcast before I do it. And, of course, they're not giving me anything they want me to push out. It's 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 nothing like that. But, you know, there's there's still some involvement there. But when it turns into the prosecutor of a case, that was closed, and the verdict read a year and a half ago. Still putting this much time and effort into controlling the narrative on what's being spoken about this case publicly, and all of them. I, I will say this: herself, uh, the jury foreman. I love Max words in the appeal brief. It says it, it's avoiding the crucible of cross examination, and that's exactly what's happening. They have this open mouthpiece to say whatever they want to say, but they won't come here. And you know, Barnett was was willing to come onto the show. Uh, And I gave her an open forum to lay out her case. Tell us your best case without interruption, without argument. Ask her if she'll come back. She says that she will. And then, once it was discovered that a lot of the things or some of the things that she told us were, in fact, I mean, just outright lies, she won't come back to defend that. I would love to have her explain to me. If I've got something wrong, come back on and explain to me. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll be nice. Come on in, explain to me. Why you've misstated these things? Were these mistakes? Were they intentional lies? Why are you doing these things? And the same things for the jury foreman. Extremely vocal everywhere on uh, that that Truth is Justice Facebook page. Just all over the place in, in the 2020 and the KHOU and Dateline. Any place he can to go and defend Colleen Barnett's case and his verdict. But he won't go into a place here where we can have a respectful conversation. But I do have some questions I would like answered. And I think all of you would have, have some questions that you'd like to answer. I know that Sandy has some questions that she would love answered as to some of the things that went on in the jury room and what's gone on during the trial and after the trial. By doing this, by setting this all up, they're evading cross-examination by having their own mouthpiece and the fact that Colleen Barnett and the jury foreman and the, the creators of this website are all working together to control this narrative You can think that's okay or that it's not okay. It doesn't matter. But I think that it's important for that information to be out there and for you to understand and know that that is exactly what's happening. Abby says, what's Barnett's prosecutorial record look like? Does she have any other potential wrongful convictions? Um, I don't know if she has any other potential wrongful convictions. I I think that, in my opinion, she seems definitely to be a win-at-all-costs prosecutor, uh, which is something that usually will open the door to wrongful convictions because. We had some prosecutors, and I'm glad they did after I made the statement, I think, in last week's follow-up, that I have a hell of a lot of respect for prosecutors and law enforcement, uh, as long as they're doing their job properly, which is which is 99% of them. And, and a few of those prosecutors spoke up that have been <laughs> kind of lurking on our Facebook pages, like, oh, I'm so glad you said that, because I you know, I was afraid that people just don't like prosecutors. That's not the case. But. Some of them were speaking about how they operate as prosecutors, that they're looking for the truth, they're looking for justice, they won't bring charges against someone if they're not certain. If they don't feel personally that that person is guilty, they're not going to take it to trial. That's not to say that Barnett doesn't feel certain that Sandy's guilty, but certainly you can see it's a, it's a weak, weak, weak case. Even if you believe Sandy's guilty, it's super weak, 100% circumstantial and speculative. So when you have a prosecutor with that mindset, certainly that's an option. I know she has had a few issues that a listener um, sent over to me. I know in 2009, she had a conviction that was overturned. It was a a non-death penalty capital murder case. And I think it involved a police officer, not a a police officer as the victim. I think that's what I read. Uh, But whatever it was, in the trial, Barnett played an unredacted video. And so the way this works is before trial, they had things like videos or audio tapes the judge and the two sides the attorneys get together and they determine like what can be played because there could be things that are inadmissible you know they could be talking about a polygraph or talking about something a previous offense that's not admissible in the trial and so they will determine the judge will determine what's allowed to be played and what's not and that was the case in this uh, I think it was 2009 trial and during the trial in front of the jury Barnett played a full unredacted video Uh, that was supposed to be and was agreed upon and ordered by the judge to play the redacted version. And from my understanding, they did get the conviction, but then this was raised on appeal that she played the unredacted video, and it caused the conviction to be overturned. She was also involved in a case, and and this is um, something I don't don't know if we'll get into it today, but we'll get into it at some point, or I may just talk about it now and just really mess up your your outline. No worries, Bob. Uh, But it involves expert witness and DNA testing, and it was uh, a 2001 case, uh, that was called into question, I think, in 2004, and it, it had to do with DNA analysis. And the long and short of it was, it was discovered that the prosecutors at Harris County, um, Barnett, and I think it was another prosecutor, were working with a lab that was doing DNA testing. And essentially, it came down to the the DNA expert and the labs are supposed to be completely independent. They're not supposed to be a tool of the prosecution or the defense. They're scientists and they do an independent analysis and create a report. Well, this particular scientist had created three versions of his report while consulting with Barnett and I think this other prosecutor to get the report to look the way they wanted it to look. So uh, it looked like that he wrote a report, they reviewed it, and said let's change this, this, and this. They changed it, uh, didn't like it again. This all came out after the fact. And to be honest, I'm not sure what the outcome was of that because the, the article I was reading wasn't about uh, necessarily the trial or, Uh, that particular case, the article was about the problems in the Harris County Forensic Laboratories back in the early 2000s. And that was one of the issues was that they were working directly with the prosecutors and were creating reports and then running it by them before they finalize a report, which could be, and I don't know if that's what happened here, but that's Brady violation. If you write a report and then the prosecutor doesn't like it, so you write another one, that can happen. But they both have to be disclosed to the defense. They have to see everything that was that was done in the case. And that's what I was going to talk about in this one If we jump back to the blood spatter episode and the blood spatter evidence with Celestina Rossi brought in from Montgomery County. You remember back then I was just I was one like, I, I think I said in the episode, I'm surely there was a blood spatter expert in Harris County. There had to be. It's huge. compared to Montgomery County, Harris County is massive. And it seemed odd that it was, remember, was it the final hour, 30, 30 days before the trial, which was almost five years after the offense. Uh, Rossi's contacted comes in and does the blood spatter analysis. And then you see when she comes to trial, she's got, you know, five paragraphs of her analysis on blood spatter, which turns into hundreds of pages of testimony where she's going on about staging the crime scene and what she, I mean, that, that she thinks that Sandy's guilty. She's talking about not, I mean, she goes on and on and on. And I thought there's certainly there has to be someone from Harris County. And then uh, yesterday, actually last night, I was reading through some of the case documents prepping for this week's episode. And I came across our buddy Maurice Carpenter's uh, CV or his resume. And sure enough, it says right on there that one of his skills is blood pattern analysis. He was trained in 2006, I think, to be a, a blood pattern analysis technician, a 40 hour course. Uh, and then you go to the next page, and it says trial experience, that he, experience he has testifying in trials, and granted, this is created before Sandy's trial, that he has testified as a blood pattern analysis expert, and then you go down a little further, and and he had taken, in the summer after uh, the murder occurred, years before the trial, he had taken an advanced technician in blood pattern analysis class, Uh, so, and, and then we find out that, one of the previous prosecutors that was handling Sandy's case that ended up not taking it to trial listed out their expert witnesses. And one of the witnesses was Maurice Carpenter. And one of the things that he was listed that he was going to testify for was blood pattern analysis. So it's similar to what we have here. Could be nothing. Uh, we had a, I had some conversations with someone who works in the forensics field near Harris County on the Facebook page last night. She said that, you know, that, that may not mean anything, you know, they, that, that the Montgomery County has a, uh, Uh, an accredited laboratory for this. Maybe that's why she went there. We we don't know. It it just, there's a lot of smoke there. Maybe there's no fire. But the issue is why was, for me, why, first of all, why wasn't, if you're going to do a blood pattern analysis, why wasn't it Carpenter? He's the one that was there on the scene. He witnessed firsthand the entire layout of the scene and the blood pattern. He's the one that took all the photos that Celestina Rossi used five years later to do the analysis. So, you know, the question one is why when it comes time to, okay, we need to do a blood pattern analysis, see what this means. Why not go to Carpenter, who's in communication with the prosecutor because he's testifying. He testified at the trial. He's the original investigator. He's highly qualified to do a blood pattern analysis. And he's testified as an expert for blood pattern analysis before. So that's that's thing one is why wasn't that, uh, why didn't they use him? Why didn't instead they go out of county out to Montgomery County for Chelsea and Rossi, and again, that could be based on what I've seen last night. That you know, because they have an accredited lab, I don't know. But clearly, Harris County has used Carpenter to do this before. But then again, similar to the kind of relationship question we had earlier, is what could this mean? Again, it's 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 smoke. It's not. It's a breadcrumb. It's not fire. But there's. It's it's just. It's something smells fishy here. Okay. So the question first is why wouldn't they use Carpenter to do it? But then that turns into, or did they? And again, that's just a question. I mean, it's not even an accusation, but it's a question we need to ask, and it's something I sure as hell would love to see the answer to. Because if Carpenter did do a blood pattern analysis, and that's why the previous prosecutor had him listed on the expert witness list for blood pattern analysis, along with all of his certifications and training and education in that field, if he did do a blood pattern analysis, and much like happened in this uh, 2004 situation with the DNA, if someone from the prosecutor's office looked at it and said, nah, I don't like that, I'm going to gonna go with someone else, I want to get something different, and they went with Rossi, again, that would be okay as long as Carpenter's work was turned over to the defense in Discovery. So it's a lot of ifs here, and again, could be nothing, but it's, it's just something that, uh, again, this is how these post-conviction investigations work. Is, is you find breadcrumbs, you follow them down, you see where they go. And they may it may lead nowhere, or it may lead somewhere. But there's certainly a lot of evidence indicating that it's possible that Carpenter did do a blood pattern analysis, and they ended up going with Rossi. And if that's the case, we do know that his analysis was never turned over to the defense, and that is a Brady violation. If it was done, it's okay to go with someone else, but it has to be turned over to the defense. So um, I, I know it's getting off a little bit from what, was, was asked there, but as far as were there wrongful convictions, we got that situation in 2009 with the unredacted video. Her name was brought up in this article about them working and fudging information from the forensic laboratory, and then that just kind of led into uh, what we discovered last night, which was there's, there's something, something fishy to me going on with the blood pattern analysis, and I thought that from the very beginning. Okay, this next one's from Salisa, and I hope I
1: said your name right. Are there any repercussions that Barnett could face in lieu of posting the unredacted
0: files? While certainly unethical, are there legal ramifications? Okay, that's something else that we need to clear up. So the unredacted files. What's happened was, and the point being there was in learning the relationship between Colleen Barnett, the former of the jury, and the author of the Truth is Justice page, is that she's working with them, and they did post a lot of unredacted material. And understand, these things happen, okay? So, I mean, there's stuff people have pointed out to me this week. There was, you know, a, a phone number missed here or there in our paperwork. So the responsibility for the redaction lies on the district attorney's office. When, when you file an open records request with them, they have people, they have a particular person in Harris County whose job it is to go through all the materials and make sure that nothing that is um, legally required to be redacted is given out to the public. And we dealt with this a lot in in Smith County. We had to go, remember, we had to file appeals with the Attorney General's office because, you know, the the Open Records Act in Texas, governed by the office of the Attorney General, dictates what they can and can't give. And in this case, to be honest, I don't think that there was really any malice intended on the part of the Truth Is Justice page. What happened was that whole data dump came, which just came out of nowhere, where, you know, all these files that we've been asking for for months, and I've been emailing with the guy from the DA's office but when they're coming as we're trying to get all these redactions done. There's so much to redact, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, as soon as I leave to go on vacation, bam, here they go. Here's the entire file. And all that happened there was that website took the all the files and said, boom, and put them out. And to be honest, the assumption would be, and it should be a correct assumption, that the DA's office didn't give them anything that shouldn't be public record. Uh, and as it turned out, that wasn't the case. Now, for me, I always go through another layer of redacting because there's certain things uh, that don't have to be redacted by the DA's office, like a phone number. You know, they they usually do, but from what I'm told from the Harris County DA's office, they don't have to de- redact phone numbers. So I try not to put them out there, but I, I'll, I'll admit I've made that mistake. I've missed it a time or two. You know, and putting a file that that you can see that you can see the redactions from the DA's office and not realize that they missed something uh, when we when we put it out. But that's what happened. So it just got everything's got dumped out. and but in that, and we're not just talking about phone numbers. there's things that it is illegal for them to release. there was there was passport numbers for members of the victim's family. There was ID numbers for members of the victim's family. Uh, there were there were volumes of the transcript that carried all the exhibits that had unredacted photos in them. They were all, Put out, and then, and that part was corrected right away by the uh, owners of the page. They, I think they pulled the, the volumes of the transcripts down right away that had, uh, as soon as they realized that there was unredacted photos in them. Um, the other stuff stayed out there for a long time. I immediately, when I, I didn't say, I'm not on there, that page, but I got the link to the files myself. And then I started getting, I, I wasn't home, so I wasn't able to get to them. And then I started getting calls like, oh my God, they've published my phone number. They published my email address. They published my passport number they from all the family. I reached out to the DA's office. The contact there who was not Colleen Barnett, by the way, uh, and told them right away, like, dude, you you just sent out all this crap, and it's published all over the internet right now. Uh, and then so they started handling that. That page has worked to redact those things and get them back off of there since then. But it was it was irresponsible. You know, the question always comes in, why do you take so long to put stuff out? Well, number one, it focuses our investigation piece by piece, and by the end of the season, all the information is out there. But it keeps us focused. But the other thing is to review the materials to make sure stuff like this doesn't happen before you you put it out like that. But the concern here is is when I find out that when I'm working that long to get these files and being told it's taking months and months and months because of redactions and then all of a sudden with a snap of a finger this other site is is provided with everything and it's not redacted. It's not even close to redacted. It was like the part part of it was and part of it wasn't even attempted to be redacted. Uh, gets, gets sent over to that site, who of course has this mission of discrediting me. So so you can imagine how I felt about it when I found out that Colleen Barnett, the prosecutor, is working directly with that group. Okay, so these, these documents came from the DA's office, not from Barnett. But I have personally witnessed, I have been in the Harris County District Attorney's office working with a gentleman, who I think is a great guy, by the way, who is in charge of Redacting and distributing this paperwork, and I have personally witnessed. And Mike, you were there too. Colleen Barnett coming into that office and telling him to give us stuff. Yeah, and she was actually telling him to give us stuff that we weren't allowed to have. It was uh, medical records, right? Because right. she wanted to prove a point about about she doesn't think Sandy had seizures, and she said, "Give him those." And and Brian, the guy, it was like, "I can't, I can't." That's that's not. And she said, no, "No, no, that's fine. Just give it to him. Just give it to him." And, and in I said, "I don't know. I don't want them." So I've witnessed that happening. With her directly going in and telling this this guy to give me stuff that I'm not supposed to have. Then I find out she's working with the people running this page and they get all of this unredacted stuff. So that's the issue. You can do with that with what you want. But there was a lot of hate and vitriol going at the the truth is justice page. Like how dare they put out this unredacted stuff. And and I mean you you can have all the problems you want to have with that group and what they do. And I encourage you, go listen to their podcast and go on their, go on their Facebook page and see what they're doing. You make up your own mind about uh what they're doing as far as the information they're putting out there i'm not going to tell you not to do that go ahead but the issue with the stuff that was redacted was not them they just took the stuff they got from the da's office and just published it and it just happened to have a bunch of stuff that the da's office didn't redact and they got it real quick stuff that i was waiting for months for because they were supposedly redacting it
1: this next one's from stacy I don't understand why Sandy's conviction could not be immediately overturned when the prosecution and defense went to speak with jurors directly after and found they clearly violated the
0: parameters. Why isn't there a way to fast-track such issues? There's no way to fast-track anything in our criminal justice system. Um, you know, that, that process is exactly what's happening. Keep in mind, it was there was an attempt at a fast-track. Max Seacrest filed a motion for new trial right after the trial happened. It was an 88-page brief that he filed. The problem with a motion for a new trial is it goes right back to the judge that uh, ruled over the trial. So a lot of times, not so much in this particular case, the trial attorneys will write you know, write a motion back to the judge saying, hey, you screwed up, so we need a new trial. In this case, that's not what happened. Uh, but they did right away uh, give that to the judge, and it was denied. And then now it's been rolled into the next phase, which is a direct appeal, where it's brought up again. This time it'll be the court of appeals that will look and determine if uh, reversible error existed.
1: Next, Ashley says, if and when Sandy's conviction is overturned, will Barnett be the one to decide if the DA's office retries the case? Then she adds, if they do retry it, would Barnett once again be the prosecutor, or is there a legal way to have her recused given her post-conviction behavior?
0: You know, I don't I don't specifically know the answer to that. Barnett definitely doesn't have anything to do with the appeals process. Kathleen Zellner is working with the head DA, which is Kim Ogg, and the appellate division so that has nothing to do with anything with Barnett. But if the the conviction was thrown out, then yeah, the DA's office would have to make a decision whether to try the case again. Um, I assume that because the, the DA will assign whichever prosecutor they want to take the case. So I, I I'm I'm, a, I'm making some assumptions here. I would assume that that yes, it could be Barnett. I uh, want my opinion. I would highly doubt. First of all, I doubt she would be tried again by anyone. Uh, especially when when now we know everything that was misrepresented at trial, and it will not fly the next time. But I would ha- I would have some real doubts that Aug or whoever the prosecutor is would want to put Barnett right back on this case because I mean I don't know this, but I have to feel that the her little PR campaign has backfired terribly back onto the Harris County DA's office. I mean it's it, she definitely has not gone out. And made herself or the DA's office look good uh, by the way she's gone out and kind of spread the propaganda about this case. I mean, because you know, all this would have could have went away, really. You know, I mean, other than us getting involved because the family contacted us, but you know, if, if Barnett just said no, I don't want to do any interview on Twenty Twenty or, or Dateline or any all the other interviews she did, or on uh, the worst one, which was the Deadly Women on on Discovery ID. You know, none of this is becomes an issue. It just sits silent, and there's people out there screaming that this happened. But she's given the fodder for all of the the turmoil that's come because of this. So I can't imagine that if the conviction was overthrown, that any DA would say, "Okay, well, let's have Barnett do it again." But it could happen. I guess I don't. I don't really know. I don't know. All right, Courtney has two questions. First, she asks,
1: with all the recent cases being solved by DNA. What's the likelihood of uploading the unknown DNA to either CODIS or 23andMe? Uh
0: I don't know. That that will be something that um Kathleen Zellner will work on and figure out, I'm sure. And I haven't met with her yet to to see what the what's going on with any of that. Um I kind of doubt it because based on what I've seen from the DNA reports, most of the profiles we have are partial profiles. And I think you probably have I know for CODIS. There is a standard um, as far as how many alleles have to be present. You you can have a partial profile, but it has to meet a certain standard. It has to have enough information to go into CODIS. And I think the same is true for any of the genealogy DNA matching um, things like like how they caught the Golden State Killer. I think you'd have to have a pretty close to, if not a full profile. You know, in the Golden State Killer, they had semen. You know, they mm-hmm. had they had it wasn't touch DNA, skin cells, partial profiles. It was a full profile. So. Yeah, so I, I, I don't think so, but I don't know. Hopefully we'll find out more about that later. I hope so. I think it'd be great. Her next question is Kathleen Zellner was recommended by Colleen
1: Barnett. With all the shady Colleen Barnett connections going on, should we be
0: worried? No, not at all. I'm not worried at all about uh Kathleen Zellner being corrupted by anyone uh at all, uh ever. Colleen Barnett, I guess she does get the credit for Zellner coming on board. But I wouldn't say she recommended her. It was it was it was a Twitter exchange where she was basically downplaying my skills as a post conviction investigator uh, by saying, you know, I'm certainly willing to look at any new evidence. And mind you, she said this knowing that she has nothing to do with the appeals process. Uh, she said, you know, so, you know, I'm definitely willing to look at any new evidence that's out there. Uh, but you really need to get a real post conviction person like Kathleen Zellner on board. That was the recommendation. The way I took it was. You know, you're not going to get there with this jackass doing it. You need to get somebody real like Kathleen Zellner. Uh, but she attacked tagged Zellner in the tweet, and that got the ball in motion. Uh, and I've, I've even heard that there was a listener, some, someone who knows someone who knows Zellner, that told her, hey, look, this prosecutor's tweeting at you. And she went and responded.
1: Joanna says, did Liz refuse to provide a DNA sample to rule out the unknown DNA, or was she never asked to provide one? If she refused, what was the reason? She
0: was never asked to provide one.
1: All right, Bob, and I noticed from all the questions, everybody's really focused on the relationship between Barnett and the jury foreman, but isn't the bigger issue the experiments performed by the jurors?
0: Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it, the the relationship there could be something important if it's proven it happened before, that they had a relation before the trial, but there's no evidence that that's actually the case. Um, yeah, so yeah, the real focus needs to be these, these experiments, and um, it's a big deal. I mean, when, when the judge tells you, reads you direct to you, orders that you are not to consider any evidence that wasn't presented at trial you're not to conduct experiments you're not allowed to do any of that even if it was just what the jury foreman said in one of his interviews where it was no big deal it was somebody just you know on the floor to see what they could see for 10 seconds it doesn't matter you're you were told not to do it it's illegal for you to do it and and that's I hope people get that point why first of all uh, you, you know you, you're only supposed to be considering evidence that was presented in trial but the reason behind that is Everything that came out at trial was subjected, whether from the defense or the prosecution, was subjected to cross-examination. So no one had free license to just go out and say, hey, this is a fact. Trust me. The other side got to come up and say, no, not it's not fact because of this, this, and this. And there's rules of evidence what can come in. There's constitutional law that says in, in, in Supreme Court rulings that a juror can't, quote, testify against the defendant, which is what's happening when the jurors go into the jury room and start doing their own experiments and start presenting that as evidence, that's not okay. That's exactly what's happening. One juror's testifying against the defendant without cross-examination is what's happening. And you know what happens when you do something like that? You end up with seven people going into a jury room that were not prepared to convict, four of whom voted not guilty. Completely flipping, and then they all get on the same page unanimously the next day to vote guilty. And as we said, whatever swayed them from not guilty to guilty weren't, as what I said when we did that episode, at point of error number one, it wasn't the facts of the trial that caused those people to vote guilty because after the trial, after they'd seen all the facts, they now the three undecided, they're undecided, fine, but four of them said not guilty. And then we find out the jurors are in the jury room, the foreman's allowing this to happen. They're talking about experiments. They did at home. They're doing experiments in the jury room, and then keep in mind that you know the, the end of this story is them going out and delivering a guilty verdict with two people. I was just talking to Marissa Melgar the other night about this, and I asked her. We were talking about something else for this coming week's episode, but I w- I asked her. So, so you were you there when the verdict was read? And yeah, and I and I said, what, what did, did you look at the jurors? And she's, yeah, I wanted to see. Like I wanted. One of them, just to look at me and 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 see what they had just done, and she said there was and, and they didn't she said that she said there was two jurors and I knew, and I've heard these reports from several people, but she went into detail and said there was two jurors that were crying their eyes out one that was really really crying, another one that was crying as well when the verdict's being read, those people were not comfortable with the verdict and then uh the Seacrest and Barnett go into the jury room afterwards to talk to the jurors and ask them how they went and and it it happened to be the same juror that was crying her eyes out in the jury box told them, only God knows what happened. I'm not comfortable being a juror. I didn't want to be a juror. Only God knows what happened. That person voted guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Think about that. For, the, for even those of you that, that think that the conviction was good, Colleen Barnett, if you're listening, one of the jurors who voted guilty beyond a reasonable doubt cried in the jury box when the verdict was being read, and then told you, you were in there after the trial, that she doesn't know what happened, she didn't want to be a juror, and only God knows who did it. How comfortable are you with that conviction after you heard one of the jurors say that, that then voted guilty beyond a reasonable doubt?
1: All right, and our last question comes from Darlene. Now that I'm a thousand percent convinced that Sandy is innocent, I'm curious if Bob is going to have more episodes on finding the real killer or killers. I feel like the Army could really accomplish a lot following up on leads the police didn't follow up on.
0: Yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, we're starting to get into that this week, Sunday, here in two days. Um, We're starting to go through the investigation, and we're going to start following up on some of the leads, exactly what you said there, some of the leads that weren't followed up on by police. We've got some pretty shocking new information coming out on Sunday. And then again, that's what the reward fund is for, which I think we were at like nine, as of today, $9,700. That's amazing. Yeah. And the GoFundMe reward fund, $10,000 almost has been raised. Plus, you've got 16,000 more coming. So we're at 26,000. We're about to start withdrawing funds and putting together the actual uh, reward fund out there and advertising it. Uh, but that's what that's all about. We need to find. The suspects. We have, there were pieces in this investigation. There was information given to the police, given to Carazal and Doucet that should have been good leads that could have led to suspects who could have then been fingerprinted, DNA tested, and compared back to the crime scene. And it was ignored, but it's not going to be ignored anymore because that's what we're moving on to next. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.